0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, Professor Kennedy, for this very generous introduction. I don't know if I can live up to this description, but Uh, I'll try my best. I thank uh, the audience, of course. Uh, Good afternoon, and I thank the Library of Arabic Literature uh, for being here, for their support, and uh, for giving me this opportunity to spend uh, this semester at NYU Abu Dhabi. It's been a great experience uh, and very productive time, so thank you again. So this lecture is partly about Arabic poetry and partly about Sufism, uh, two subjects that are very dear to my heart. And as my lecture will try to convey that uh, the two traditions merge, right? Sufism itself is a poetic tradition. I'll try to give an overview of both traditions before delving into my question, my subject matter. That is to demonstrate how poetry Arabic in this case, is employed in Sufism. So what is Sufism? (coughs) And who are the Sufis? The audience must have some idea about these, because because, these are major terms, Sufism, mysticism, etc. Some associate actually Sufism with mysticism. Some think it is a sect or a branch of Islam. Right, I often hear my friends saying, oh, I'm not a Sunni, I'm not a Shia, I'm a Sufi. And some look at it as a way of understanding Islam. <clears throat> this is the Sufi way of interpretation. Um, while there are also those who perceive it as an innovation, Bida, or a diversion from the proper Sunnah. That is definitely the case too. So all things start and end with definitions. Of course, we tend to define things as we experience them. Like the four blind men describing the elephant in one famous tale of Rumi, none of them was wrong, but none was right. I will avoid defining Sufism here, as definitions of the term, its origins and connotations considerably differ depending on whether we are outsiders or insiders to Sufism. And there's much politics involved in the term. And defining the term, I must say. Instead, I will describe the phenomenon, Sufism, by looking at key Sufi practices and beliefs. So I'm going to define Sufism by defining the Sufis to invoke a title by our dear uh, friend uh, uh, Shaukat Turawa defining the Adab by defining the Ajib. So Sufis are a group, or I must say groups of people who tried to answer the question, how can we become closer to God? Their example is the prophet. They want to polish the mirror of their hearts to be able to reflect the light of the divinity, to become perfect humans in sand Kamil. Sufis attempted to achieve this goal in various ways, And naturally, several Sufi groups can be distinguished even from the very early period. There are the ascetics, Zohad, who emphasized abstention from pleasures, belongings, and focused on fighting the desire and the base self, al-hawa wa'al-nafs, in an activity called the Greater Jihad, Jihad al-Akbar. There are the sober Sufis, who leave a room for reason and the intellect. Meanwhile, there are those who advocated getting drunk or an ecstatic behavior. Don't get too excited. This is mostly metaphorical, at least in the tradition. The people of blame, the Malamatiya, called the Sufis to hide their identities as Sufis and mask their behavior with professions. So a Sufi will not show that he's a Sufi. Some Sufis want to unite with the divinity. The example here is a drop of water that is uniting with the ocean in order to be preserved. How do you save a drop of water? Throw it into the ocean. The drop becomes the ocean. Some Sufis witness God in everything they say. He is present in the mosque, but also in the tavern. Some take the concept of an insan al-kamil, the perfect human, to another level, to the haqiqah muhammadiyah. You reach the reality or the truth in the Prophet Muhammad. You reflect the light of the Prophet. Sufis in general act as if God is watching them all the time. This is the level of Ihsan in a famous hadith, the hadith of Shabrila where there is Islam, Iman, and then the level of Ihsan. So, Sufis believe that this is talking about them. They attempt to take Islamic practices to the next level. Sufis want to remember and mention God through the individual or collective act of dhikr. The aim is to reawaken mystical knowledge and feeling, to cause the person or listener to remember Dhikr, or the practice of Dhikr, points to the archetypal moment of divine awareness, the primordial covenant, Yawm al-Mithaq. On this pre-existential day described in the Quran, before their creation, human beings had stood witness in the form of specks of light to God's lordship, thus acknowledging their standing vis-à-vis God as servants. God asked them, Intimately, They affirmed. Bala. The Sufis' aim is to reenact the witnessing on the day of the primordial covenant through constant recollection of God, dhikr. Thus, the role of dhikr is to remind the Sufis of that intimate moment. This can be done through chanting God's name, reciting poetry, singing, Um, poetry is usually coupled with music or even dancing. Individually or collectively, of course. Sufism became one of the most omnipresent aspects of the Muslim civilization. If you are a villager, let's assume you are, in the Balkans or a merchant in Senegal or a boat captain in Malaysia Throughout many centuries, one of the ways you would interact with your fellow Muslims is through the practice of Sufism. So things like collective chanting of the names of God, reciting poems, playing music in a Sufi lodge became very common. This became a social activity and institutionalized throughout the Islamic world. Sufi lodges are to be found in most, if not all Islamic cities where inhabitants and travelers meet to seek the guidance of a Sufi master or the blessing of a saint. Poetry appears to be, to have been closely associated with the lives, thoughts, and legacy of the Sufis. Sufis used poetry to describe mystical experiences and thoughts which were better hidden in subtle intimations than expressed in statements of prose. Perhaps poetry uses metaphor, uses uh, ambiguity, vague language. I don't know. And Sufis also want, uh, they use this. Sufism is ishara, not ibarra. It's allusions. Uh, we have many stories about this. There's a story of Samnun, for example, one of the early Sufis. Uh, he used to answer people in poetry when they asked him about religious matters. And people, of course, get angry because they don't understand the answer, right? And that's Samnun's point, of course, as well. Uh, we have stories of Sufis weeping uh, when they hear it a line of poetry while they have been listening to the Quran all day long without any response. We have, su- and there's a long discussion about this, why poetry actually affects us more than the Quran. There is 120 chapters on uh, in is Ahya Al-Muddin about this. We have uh, stories of Sufis turning white when they recite poetry or their hair uh, their turns white or where they uh, just Die when they hear poetry. You don't want to hear these stories. I'm not giving you any ideas because I'm going to recite poetry. But today I will examine how the themes or motifs, so ideas of pre Islamic Umayyad and early Abbasid poetry were used to create a mystical poetics. I will focus on the formative period of Sufism, that is 9th and 10th centuries Common Era, roughly 1,000 years ago. So, all my examples today are actually coming from two books in manuscript form. This is one of them, Kitab al Amthal wal Istishhadat, book of examples and illustrations, and this is by Abu Abd al Sulami, and this is by uh, Abu Nasr al qushayri Kitab al Shawahid, uh, still in manuscript form. So, I'll use these as my source. But this is just an example. There are hundreds of. Uh, Uh, of stories in dozens of books of Sufism. But anyway, I will demonstrate today how Sufis in their search for form and expression were constantly looking over their shoulder to see how earlier poets had expressed certain ideas, themes, emotional, and psychological states. In order to reference them, Thus, making the inherited poetic conventions a medium for the expression of their own experiences. And I claim that most groups uh, try to do this. They search for form to express themselves. And Sufis are the same. To understand themselves first, of course. Uh, We have many stories from this period in the form of Sufi akbar of akbar, uh, in the earliest books of Sufism. Sufis tend to quote eminent poets whose poetry must have been widely known and memorized. Yet Sufi akbar do something unique, I, I think. They place this readily recognizable poetry in a new context that deliberately changes the past. Majnun, for example, becomes the Sufi who left reason aside. His beloved Layla stands as a symbol of divinity. Abu Nuas becomes a toxic Sufi and his wine is symbol for divine wisdom and knowledge. Ibn Rumi, Abu Tamam, Buhturi, and Mutanabbi stand in the court of the quintessential generous patron, Allah, and seek his bounty. It is in some sense, a process of metaphorization in which the reality of past models now acts as a device or metaphor for the Sufi poetics. The Sufi who recites the poem illustrates, explains, or justifies his mystical experience or idea via the embedded theme, but also at the same time, the Sufi performer evokes, links, and reinterprets the poetic heritage associated with the poem, thus placing himself within a poetic tradition against which his own experience becomes more evident. Now, I will give a short introduction to the genres of Arabic poetry, or the modes of composition, to demonstrate how Sufis interpreted and used them. So this is the monster in our field, the Qasida. Um, So this is a form, a genre, in Arabic uh, uh, poetry uh, starts from pre-Islamic Arabia but also continued to be very popular in later times and I'm of course here generalizing. It's usually a bipartite or tripartite uh, uh, poem. It starts with the ruined campsite mm-hmm. of the departed beloved uh, or so you either s- stand or stop and cry and ask people to cry uh, or you arrive and describe the departed caravan of the beloved, the Rahlat al-Dawa'in, or you reflect on old age or the khayal of the beloved, the resemblance of uh, the phantom of the, of the beloved. Of course, this is a generalization. Not all poems start this way, but this is at least the Abbasid interpretation of pre-Islamic poetry. Mm? Ibn Qutaybah interprets at least Abbasid poetry this way. And then there is one line of transition, Da'za, We call it, and then the poet, after losing that which is most important, the poet looks at what he has, the most important thing, his she-camel, right? The camel or a journey, and this is interpreted in Abbasid times that it's a journey to the patron, of course. And then, what's the goal of the poem? What's the gharad? Is it to praise? Is it to what's the poet composing this for? And this, then this is the praise, self-praise or anything else. Of course, in Abbasid time, we, starting even from the Umayyad time, we have independent poems, the independent uh, qasidas that focus on ghazal, for example, or wine. Uh, so love poetry or wine poetry or other things as well. So I'm going to use all this and give an introduction to all this, but also the Sufi interpretation of all this, the Atla. Whether Bedouin or courtly, the pre-Islamic Qasida often begins with a ritualistic elegiac nasib, which contains motifs That revolve, or ideas I mean, that revolve around decay, loss, and nostalgia for times past. Among them is the motif of the ruined abodes, the Kridiyar, or Al Atlal, which reflects the Bedouin lifestyle. In the Abbasid age, the conventions of the archetypal Qasida form were still available and in use, although the lived reality that informed them was not. Baghdad was a big city, of course. Uh, perhaps hundreds of thousands of inhabitants, I don't know, but it's definitely not, not a small uh, city. So there are no atlal in Baghdad. <laughs> Scholars of Arabic literature have often emphasized this conventional aspect of Abbasid poetry. But despite this mannerism, these conventions needed to be explained and remolded to fit their new urban setting. This gave rise to what Trinati Yakubi, a giant scholar in our field, describes as a transformation of the desert Qasida from a Bedouin poem to a court poem. These motifs, these poets, strive to decipher the elegiac motifs, explaining them and assigning to them new meanings and significances. I'm going to give one example from pre-Islamic time and then move forward. The most famous line in Arabic poetry. The cliché, right? So most people memorize, of course, this. And I'm going to butcher the Arabic with my uh, clumsy translation of this. Hold friends. Let us weep for the memory of the, of the loved one and the abode at suqt al-liwa. Between al-dakhul, then Haumal, then tu'dah, then al-mikrat whose trace was not effaced by winds sweeping from the south and the north. قفاء <muching and singing> I will not discuss the poets who attacked this ritual, the atlal ritual, and mocked it like Abu Nuwas. Instead, I would like to turn to Abu Tammam, a court poet in the Abbasid time, who re-established the grand style and decoded the the traditional motifs. And I'm going to illustrate with one example that suits my purpose for, for today. So this is the beginning of one of Abu Tammam's poems. You are not you. And the abode is not, is no abode. The abode is no abode. The passion has faded and desire has departed. La anta anta. La anta anta wala diaru diaru. خفّ hawa وتولت الأوطار The line. In another, in another poem, he actually names the different poets and then calls Talalul Jami'i, all these poets. Laqad hamida, you have departed, you have effaced. So this line is, in effect, an explanation of the psychological bond between the poet and the conventional scene of the ruined abodes. The ruin. Before which he stands, lamenting is in fact a psychological loss. La anta enta. Something has changed. The abodes are ruined, yes, but what is lamented is the ruin or the loss of the past self. The line, therefore, not only explains the role of the abandoned abode in the archetypal Qasida as a metaphor for the poet's confrontation with time, but, also, but it also comments on the development of the conventional motif. And its position in Abbasid Poetics, Whereas a Amru'ul Qais' scene, Qifanabki, still correlates to an onwards reality. You can even draw it, right? I had even, I was able to illustrate it with an image. Still correlates to an onwards reality and still rises out of an immediate landscape. Abu Tamam's line is abstract. You are not you. Similar verses can be seen throughout Abbasid poetry, and Abu Tammam is not unique in this regard. Mutanabbi has has, uh, a lot of poetry like this. I argue today that it is this Abbasid abstraction of traditional motifs that the Sufis borrowed in their akhbar, surrounding classical lines. They analyzed, Sufis analyzed the interpretation allowing a transformation from the ritualistic and abstracted, then abstracted meaning to a Sufi meaning. So it's a metaphor on a metaphor, which in turn was utilized in original compositions of Sufi poetry. And I'm going to give examples. And I'm going to start with the atlal motif because I started with it. In an anecdote... Uh, that appears in uh, Sulemi's book, which I just showed the manuscript of, we find the following. I heard Abu Bakr Muhammad bin Abdullah bin Shadhan saying, a man said to Abu Muhammad al-Jurayri, an early Sufi, I was once standing on the plane of delight. I was happy and the path to openness became evident. Beautiful thing. But I slipped, and my former station became hidden from me. How can I reach it again? Please show me the way back to where I was. Abu Muhammad al jurairi cried and said, Oh, brother, everyone is attempting to overcome this obstacle, but I will recite to you verses which have an answer to your question. These are the verses. Stop at the abodes. For these are their traces, in mourning for the loved ones, in grief and yearning. How I have stood asking for its people, seeking an informant, an honest man, or a sympathizer. The passion buried in these ruins answered, you have left the ones you love there will be no reunion. قف بالديار قف بالدياري فهذه آثارهم تبكي الأحبة حسرة وتشوقا قم قد وقفت بها أسائل مخبرا عن أهلها أو صادقا أو مشفقا فأجابني داعي الهوى في رسمها فارقت من تهوى the ruins in this anecdote refers to the lost station in the Sufi path. The Sufi, like the pre-Islamic poets, stand abandoned, lost, and bewildered. Seeking news, truth, or comfort, the traces remind the Sufi of station of nearness, qurb, or gathering, jamma, that was followed by remoteness, ba'd or dispersion, farq, and they tragically announce the hard truth. There will be no reunion, or a reunion is difficult. Azza al While the pre-Islamic poet suffers from the vicissitude of time, the Sufi grieves his own sloppiness. But if all pre-Islamic poets had to stand and reflect by the abode, so do all Sufis, as Jurairi proclaims. Everyone is attempting to overcome this obstacle. My favorite story is a story where actually the Sufis quote <laughs> because the manzil is al-manzil al It's the first abode. It's the yawm al-mithaq. So my second motif is travel or the journey, Rahil. In Arabic literature, motifs and themes relating to travel and the associated feelings of yearning, alienation, and estrangement can be traced back to the pre-Islamic period and were also employed by Abbasid poets. Abbasid poets, by the way, they shortened the journey section, they so- shortened the rahil. It's not elaborate, but it's still there. In this section of the classical Qasida, which follows the elegiac introduction, the poet usually describes his mounting animal and or or embarks upon a journey through the desert. The Abbasid poets and critics interpreted the Rahil as an invitation for the compassionate concern of the patron, thus paving the way to the praise section. The destination of the Rahil is the patron, And his reward is a compensation for family and possessions left behind and for the adversity the poet endures on the way. Here again, we find a process of abstraction. The themes of travel and journey are frequently visited in Sufi Akbar. In fact, Sufi anthologies often include a chapter on travel, its benefits, and its etiquette. The Sufi is a perpetual traveler, the journey is the Sufi path, and the homeland is a moment rather than a place. The pre-existential day of Yawm al المي- or Yawm Al-Mithaq, described in the Quran, and I just showed the ayah at the beginning. Sufis accepted the Abbasid interpretation of the Rahil, but replaced the earthly patron with the ultimate one. The outer journey is a flight from material possession, wealth, family, and reputation, in search for certitude, yaqeen. The outer journey supports the inward journey. And here's an example. He, meaning Abu Qasim al qushayri in this case, said, through service, one reaches the reward, thawab. And by reverence, one reaches the real, al haq There is a difference, however, between one arrival and the other. He chanted, I went to you pursuing honor and nobility. The others came seeking wealth. He then chanted, it wasn't poverty that drove us from our lands, drove us from our lands, we sought happiness in you. Of course, these are all quotations, and in this case, both lines are by Ibn al-Mu'taz. A caliph for one day, by the way. Too bad. Love poetry. Sufi anthologies often dedicate a chapter to the topic of love, mahabba, that elaborates on the nature and characteristics of divine love. From the human and the divine perspectives, you, of course, love God, but also God loves you. wa you يحبنا in the Quran. God's love is infinite and manifests itself in mercy. From the human side, we encounter love as gratitude, as God's due, as an act or, or remembrance, uh, as obedience, as a consequence of free will, and as annihilation. You love God. You perish in him. In Arabic poetry, in the Umayyad period, uh, specifically, the independent love poem, the Ghazal, emerged in two main categories, the Hijazi Ghazal and the Udri Ghazal, and I'm going to explain the difference. The Hijazi poets, named after the cities of Hijaz, uh, used urban themes and stressed, a lady's nobility and her lover's submissiveness. A favorite po- topic was the encounter of the lovers while on pilgrimage to the shrines of Mecca and Medina. The poetry of Omar ibn al-Farid, uh, sorry, Omar bin Abi Rabia, uh, played a leading part in this pleasure-oriented urban society of Hijaz. Omar's ghazal is light-hearted, frivolous, but never obscene. He usually assigns the lovers, friends, and the beloved's maids an active part in the relationship. The Udri Ghazal, in contrast, as a reference uh, to uh, the tribe of Udra, uh, stressed the lover's chastity. The beloved was simply irreplaceable, and the poet now found no solace with another lover or even with his camel. Poets like Jamil, Qais ibn al-Mulawwah al-Majnun, and many others sang about the fatal nature of love, to which the lover is not only victim, but martyr, shaheed. Love here is as powerful as fate. Love is often expressed in religious terms. The beloved is the object of the lover's total devotion, the shrine to which he makes his pilgrimage. The faithfulness of the loving poet is rewarded with sickness and madness, junoon. He's majnoon. Qaisad Mulawah al-Majnoon. Umayyad and early Abbasid love poetry was frequently quoted in Sufi Akbar as the following example from Kitab al amthal this time. So let me again demonstrate. I heard Ahmad ibn Ali ibn Jafar Say, when Murtaish, a very famous early Sufi, was asked about Sufism, he said, Sufism is ambiguity and disguise. He chanted, no one knows the secrets you and I keep, except the friend. Nothing is spoken. Surry wa la ya'lam bihi khalilu bi natiqu He then chanted When you return look away the tribe will think you love another It's a famous line by Omar ibn Rabia by the way idha jitta idha jitta famnah tarfa 'alayka ghayran likay yahsabu anna al-hawa haythu tanthuru both lines tackle the topic of secrecy among the lovers to protect them from blame and envy, relatives and enemies. The second line, as I said, is by the Hijazi love poet Omar ibn Abi Rabia in which the beloved takes an active role and asks, asks for concealment and secrecy. We now turn attention to the Udri ghazal to demonstrate that both types of ghazal were used. It's an image of Al-Majnun, of course, and Layla. Layla is, you know, it's of course a a Persian interpretation even of the story. I heard Hussain bin Ahmad al-Razi say, I heard Shibli, one of the very famous Sufis in the early time, a companion to Al-Hallaj. Shibli, by the way, everyone was stoning Halaj, hallaj but Shibli threw a flower. But then Halash says that the flower was more difficult on him than the stones. So I heard Al hussain bin Ahmad al Razi say, I heard Shibli say, from your perspective, am I not a madman and you sound of mind? May God increase me in madness and you insanity. He suddenly proclaimed, They say the one you love has driven you mad. I replied, Only the mad know love's pleasure. He also chanted, passion drives me mad, but I am not mad. The madness of passion is a madness beyond madness. Not the best Arabic verse, but not the best Arabic translation, but... But that's fine, I've demonstrated the use of this. And of course, this hundreds of lines, almost all Majnun Layla is quoted in the Sufi Akbar. He's he's a major figure uh, as a Sufi. The dominant theme in the last two lines is madness. In Sufism, we encounter the suffering of the lover and his wish for redemption in death, the fana. In this type of ghazal, the Sufi describes how love itself is his affliction. As in the uzri ghazal, the focus is not the object of love, but the suffering of the lover. (coughs) And especially in this case, how can you describe God? Right, he's beyond description. So, the description of the beloved is totally totally absent. But instead, there is an emphasis on the suffering of of the lover. So it's a very strong metaphor, in fact. Uh, the prototype here, Majnun Layla, had no need for the sensual reality of his beloved. In a famous story, he says, anha. I'm, I'm, I'm quite busy loving her. I don't need to see her. So the suffering shows that his love for God is unconditional. The fa- faithful lover enjoys the affliction God sends while remaining totally obedient. To him with a capital H. Layla often appears in this context as a symbol for the divinity. You see that, for example, in uh, the poetry of Ibn al Farid. So, panegyric, Madih. That's a difficult topic. Yeah, why not? Panegyrics, or Madih, is among the most enduring elements in Arabic literature. In this type of Qasida, We find the socio political role of literature in Muslim culture. So, poetry can be extremely political. Madih had had two main functions. It fulfilled the, the ruler's commemorative portrayal, it's his image, right? And at the same time, it enabled him to practice patronage. The panegyric Qasida often dwells on the complex relation between the poet and the patron, it acts as a pact and names the duties of both. So it's not a straightforward praise, right there. Many sub-genres and motifs here. The poet offers his devotion, loyalty, gratitude, service, and his words as well, in return for material tokens of generosity. In Sufism, the poet uh, uh, stands in the presence of the ultimate giver, the most perfect of patrons, the most generous one, Al-Kareem, right? Um, Here, Sufis often quote Abu Tammam and Mutanabbi and sometimes Ibn Rumi. For example, in Kitab Al-Amthal, Sulami again, um, we find these lines by Abu Tammam, originally in praise of the Caliph Al-Mu'tasim. They emphasize the unusual generosity of the patron, A favorite motif in panegyric poetry from pre-Islamic times. The patron is always generous. I heard Abdullah bin Muhammad of Damascus saying, I once was standing, I was attending the study circle of a Shibli. Here we find Shibli again. In the mosque of Medina, when a beggar approached, the beggar said, O oh God, O oh Most Generous, Shibli groaned and shouted, how can I describe the truth, meaning God, by generosity, when his creature says concerning his, capital H form, his hand was ever open in generosity, his fingers would not make a fist. When you visit him, he is radiant, as if you had offered him what you sought. Were his hands empty, he would offer his soul when you ask him for a gift. Take care, for he is the ocean. From any side you approach, all goodness is in his depth, while his generosity is but waves on the shore. Ta'awwada bas'tal kaffi hatta lam تراه اذا ما جئته متهللا كانك تعطيه الذي انت سائله ولم لم يكن في كفه غير روحه لجاد به فليتق الله آمله هو البحر هو البحر من اي النواحي اتيته فلجته المعروف والجود ساحله The Wine Song The خمرية. Wine poetry is a legacy from pre-Islamic times. The wine song flourished in the Abbasid age in the poems of Abu Nuwas, the most important Arabic wine poet of all times. In his wine songs, we find the motifs of the journey towards the wine house or monastery. The rebuke for drinking, detailed descriptions of wine and its effects, the wine majlis, the cupbearer, the boon companions, even the transaction of buying wine is described in detail. The consumption of wine is often likened to a wedding, and wine itself is the bride. As early as Abu Nuwas, we can see the idealization and sometimes the abstraction of wine, and this is the contribution of Abu Nuwas to the Sufi tradition, in fact. It is remarkable how often Abu Nuwas is quoted in Sufi tradition. There even have, uh, have been some claims recently in some books that, oh, of course, he was a Sufi, he wasn't drunk, drinking wine. Uh, well, not I'm not delving into that. But that which is most profane is transformed into that which is most sacred. Wine is linked to intoxication or drunkenness. It refers to spiritual love or divine knowledge. The cup is the Sufi's heart. The cupbearer is often God or the prophet, the source of knowledge. Uh, just look at the wine poem, the famous line poem, uh, wine poem of Omar uh, ibn al-Farid, the Khamriya you'll find all these motifs. Two lines attributed, but I'm focusing on the early period today. So two lines attributed to Ibn Shibl al-Baghdadi or Ibn Duraid or Idris ibn Yaman. So we don't know who exactly was the poet, but we find the lines in Kitab al-Shawahid wal-Amthal, a Sufi book. Describe the, the lines describe the lightness of wine and its transformative effect, how line ch- wine changes you. He was asked, why is the dead body heavier than the live one? He chanted. The empty flasks were heavy. When filled with wine, they were light. They flew. When souls inhabit them, bodies are light. فَكُلَّ زجاجات أتتنا فرغا حتى إذا مُلِئَتْ بصرف الراحي خفت فكادت تستطير بما حوت إن الجسوم تخف In Sufi Poetics, so, this is my conclusion. In Sufi poetics, all the devices of the classical model are still there, but they have been transformed into something very different. To the Sufis, these earlier poets are the Sufis' predecessors, their prototypes. The courtly motifs and topoi refer to the human experience of the divine or to the memory of it. The same motifs are also a reminder of past poets who have stood in the same position. The past that is conjured up here is a poetic one. This transformation reaches its zenith in Arabic in the poetry of Ibn Arabi, with whom I will conclude this paper. Call out, I have this. Call out to Dad and Rabab, Zainab, and him. These are famous uh, uh, beloveds in Arabic poetry. Call them. Call them all. Selma and Lubna. Then listen. Listen to them. They have a truth to say. They have something to teach you. I profess. The religion of love, in another line, another couplet, I should say, it's part of a qasida I profess the religion of love wherever its caravan turns. This, is a very, of course, a very famous line of Ibn Arabi. Everyone uh, knows this. So I profess the religion of love wherever its caravan turns or along the way. That is the belief, the faith I keep. Like Bishr of Hind and her sister, but the second line actually that follows is not that famous. They stop at the first line. So, like Bishr of Hind and her sister, love mat Qays and his lost Layla, Meya and her lover, Gailan. So he's trying to evoke all these lovers and beloveds to learn from them. Adinu bidin al edu slash institute